Welcome to another Dojo Discussion. This afternoon, I had a great time sitting down and talking with Dr. Ken Birding. He just wrote this new book, Paul's Thorn in the Flesh, New Clues for an Old Problem. And our friends at Lexum Publishers were nice enough to send me a copy and to connect me with Ken to have a discussion about it. If you don't know, the subject of Paul's so-called thorn in the flesh that he mentions in 2 Corinthians is considered to be a problem or, or an issue that we will just never know what Paul was referring to, what his actual thorn in the flesh was. We just can't know. It's impossible. But Ken's not convinced of that. He thinks that actually, no, when you look at the literary, the cultural, and even the linguistic backgrounds, Paul gives a number of clues that can help us narrow down just what exactly this thorn in the flesh might have been. It's a really cool book. There's never been a full-length book written on this issue, which is wild considering how much has been written about Paul and his life and every other aspect of his ministry. So it was great reading the book and even better getting to sit down and talk with its author. And speaking of 2 Corinthians, you may have noticed I'm wearing my 2 Corinthians Aroma of Christ shirt. This is one of the many dojo designs that we have available over in our online store. We have different styles, colors for men, for women. You can even get one for your dog if you want. This and other gifts are available over in the dojo store, so check it out. Everything you buy from there is just a little way of helping support this ministry. There's two other ways that you can support the ministry of Disciple Dojo that are even better. The first one is to like this video and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. That's the easiest one. It doesn't cost anything. Just click right there on the bottom of your screen, like, subscribe. And if you really want to help us out, click the little bell that lets YouTube know, hey, let us know when there's more Disciple Dojo content. All those things help bump us up in the algorithm. They help get Disciple Dojo videos to a wider audience, and they don't cost anything. So it's very much appreciated, those of you who have. Our goal by the end of 2024 is to hit 20,000 subscribers. Insane goal. Only way that we can even come close to it is with your help. So if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe. Another way that you can help, Disciple Dojo is entirely donor-funded. We're a full 501c3 nonprofit. Everything we do is contingent on monthly givers. So if you would like to become a Disciple Dojo donor at any amount, it can be $5 a month, it can be $500 a month, whatever you're able to give, we really appreciate it. And that's what keeps this ministry going. So thank you for putting up with that little bit of housekeeping right at the front. And now let's hear more about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Ken, it is great to have you here. And Dojo viewers who may not be familiar with you, I would love for you to, I know it's always weird having to give an introduction for yourself. And so how would you introduce yourself to somebody who is just stumbled upon this video and said, huh, Paul's thorn in the flesh. That's interesting. Who's this guy? Well, I would first say I'm a follower of Christ above and beyond everything else. Hmm. Um, I'm married to Trudy for a long time. She was a high school friend of mine, 14. I have four daughters. Three of them are married, um, all adults now. And, you know, like Philip in the Bible, love him. <laughs> he had four daughters. They were prophetesses. So I totally relate to him. <laughs> um, I love the second century 
hang out with people like Polycarp and Clement and Ignatius. I love the Apostle Paul and um, spend a lot of time with him. So I teach at uh, Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, and have lived a lot of places in the world, including Portland, Berlin before the wall came down, lived a long time in the Middle East, mm -hmm. Southern California twice, Philadelphia, and north of New York City, just barely north of New York City. So um, that's some of my background. I'm an elder at my church, and I lead up a community of students, along with my wife, uh, called The Birdhouse. <laughs> at least that's what they named it. That's a great uh, name. Which is a, which is a discipleship community for young adults, particularly college students. And we have mm -hmm. 10 students living on site with us every year for 10 months. And then we kick them out at the end of 10 months. <laughs> and we have another group come through. We're on our fifth group right now. We have our sixth group already planned for next year. We pray together, we have meals together, we spend time just sitting down, talking about life, talking about scripture. There, those are a few things about me. That's great. In true birdhouse fashion, you kick baby birds out of the nest when they're ready to fly and take on new. That's really neat. And that I'm sure that having been all over the world, that you've gotten to see how scripture is... Uh, received in many different cultures and or not received in some cultures but and how that cultural backgrounds can play a role in how we approach scripture and how we read texts and yeah, really, i really does. i picked it uh, i, I want to ask you about it in particular on what we're going to talk about today because i have a feeling living in the Middle East. I've, I've, I've been to the Middle East a couple of times, never for extended periods, about two weeks or so usually. And, but I know that there's just being over there, being around various Middle Eastern cultures, really throughout Mediterranean, is it can color how we read scripture a little bit differently than from here in the Bible Belt South or out on the West Coast where you are. So before we jump into that, how... Did this, uh, for viewers don't know, um, Ken's got a new book out, Paul's Thorn in the Flesh. This is by Lexham Press. And the folks at Lexham were kind enough to send me a copy. And I was happy to read it. I found it really interesting. And then they said, would you like to talk to the author? I said, of course, I'd like to talk to the author. Let's get him in the dojo. And he was kind enough to reply and to agree to it. How did you spend, first of all, this is a, a whole book on one verse, one passage uh, that some people might think is, how, how is there a whole book's worth of stuff to say on one passage and kind of a mysterious passage at that? So walk us through where this project started. Did it start decades ago? Did it start a couple of years ago? How did you get here to writing this book? Thanks. And by the way, I've never had a theological discussion in a dojo before, so I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, First time for everything. <laughs> I've been super curious about this question for a long time. I've been talking to my classes about it. I teach a class called Life and Letters of Paul. I also teach a class on Romans, but obviously this is 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 for everybody who's listening today. Uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh. Just thinking that there's got to be more to say about this and stumbling uh, across sort of a, uh, a deep prejudice 
about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I think more than any other issue in the Bible, I can't think of any other that's more than this. There's just this basic prejudice that you know, you're not going to make any progress on this. So for probably probably 15 years, maybe I've been just pushing into this, noticing some things, uh, talking to my classes about it. But about five years ago, I had a number of things that um, in my own life that that got me thinking particularly um, about this because I had some medical conditions as well that just had some pain associated with it. Mm. And then I was like, huh, I need to think more about Paul's thorn in the flesh. So I didn't do what most people do in studies. Usually what they do is they would just go off and see what is everybody saying? I did a couple just quick looks just to see, but I was already familiar with it because I teach in this area. Mm-hmm. And so I just decided I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just hang out in the Bible for a long time. I'm just going to be thinking about, I would just open up the passage. I just read it in Greek. Uh, I would, I would start thinking about what connections go here, literary connections, historical background issues. I started thinking about those uh, early Christian conversations on these intertextual issues and just started um, wondering what is there? And I just, for for like a whole year, I just didn't look at anything else. While I'm doing my exercises in the morning. I'm thinking about Paul's thorn in the flesh. I'm taking a shower. I'm thinking about Paul's thorn in the flesh, and just spending time on that. And as as it as it turns out, I just kept seeing things like, wait a minute, why isn't anyone commenting about that? Or, oh yeah, I remember someone commented about this, but why isn't anyone incorporating that into their overall understanding of this? So just a little bit at a time. I don't really move fast when I do things like that. I don't try to push things. I like to Mm -hmm. take my time, let them settle, argue against myself, try to dissuade myself from some some position. And um, eventually it just started coalescing into what I thought was an article. And so I started thinking, okay, this would be good. I'll write an article on this. But then I just started finding more things. And when I particularly landed on the whole kind of magical background side of things, I knew that was going to take a while to unpack. And and the connections with Job, that was the moment when I knew this this couldn't be an article. It had to be a book. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, what a foolish person even to think about talking about this. This is crazy. I mean, I, you know. I'm a New Testament scholar. I try to do my best at that. I don't want to be looked down upon by everyone in the guild, but um, but I just kept finding things. I thought, you know, at some point you just have a responsibility to write them down and share them and see how people respond to them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a bit of the story. Yeah. I, so how long, let's say if you had to nail it down, you know, how long have you, how, how long has Paul's thorn in the flesh been a significant part of your mental workload, would you say? Like how long yeah, have you been mulling this over? About five years. Okay, yeah. that's a long time yeah. for it's, any. It is a long time, <laughs> and it it shows because in the book you kind of leave no stone stone unturned. Um, it's it's a comprehensive case which you would have to be you would have to make if you are going to tackle a topic that seems this prejudiced against finding out. And you open the book with that a discussion of that. You open the book talking about, hey, 
here's here's what everybody has said and basically has concluded we're never going to figure it out it's it's all it's a it's a chasing of the wind i'm I'm translating ecclesiastes right now so that's fresh on my mind and a lot of interpreters would just say this is you're you're chasing the wind here this is not going to lead anywhere but you make a really compelling case when i shared this on my facebook social media feed and just said, Hey guys, I'm going to be having uh, Kim Birding on to talk about his book and thorn in the flesh. And if any of you are interested, the, all the responses were not all, but most were along the lines of, Oh, I've always thought we can't figure that out. I've always heard we can't know what that is. I, you know, and so I just wanted to know from, from your research and what you felt, why do you think there is such a prejudice on this particular issue that we just can't know? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Just before I answer that, let me tell you, I was working on another book at the same time as I was working on this. Oh. It was a, devo- a devotional book uh-huh. on union with Christ. And so that book is now out. Oh, wonderful. But that was that turned out a devotional book. That was my hard book. This is actually kind of my fun book because I got to nerd <laughs> out on this book. So it was really great. But this was one of my this is actually one of the biggest problems was this deep. Uh, prejudice, you could just say a very thick layer of presuppositions. Mm -hmm. So just for everyone who's listening, you know, everybody swims in a pool of presuppositions. You have a set of assumptions that you bring to the text and they color the way that you read the text um, and they become prejudices if they just become deeply entrenched. And in this particular case, I've been trying to figure out when it really happened, but I think it's somewhere around the time of Lightfoot. So if you go back maybe 130 years or so, one of the most important New Testament scholars was J.B. Lightfoot, and he, he was an amazing scholar. I still use his stuff in lots of places. And even his stuff on Paul's thorn in the flesh is very interesting, but at the end of the day, he just puts it out there. We're never gonna. We're never gonna res- resolve this. And I think just someone of his weight, where he says that you're not gonna resolve it, and people have just ad nauseum been repeating this ever since. So I think maybe it's about 130 years old, and and you still get regular times where somebody will, like they'll write an article about it, but it's different. Usually, what they do is they see one thing or two things. And they're like, oh, this is interesting. And then they'll write an article about it. But the problem is it's co- not comprehensive enough. Mm. It's not dealing with you know, what I deal with as 20 criteria in the book. And you've got to look at all of these and you've got to factor them all in. So there's all these pieces that have been hanging out there. Uh, some really great observations made by people and some observations that needed to be made that have not yet been made. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to pull all of those together into the book and then, then just say, well, what could actually be Paul's thorn in the flesh? And what it does is it, it functions to like, you know, it draws a circle around it mm-hmm. and says all of these things are excluded here. And the more criteria you have, the narrower the circle gets until you bring it down. And I didn't bring it down to a point, as you know, you've read the book, mm-hmm. but I bring it down to a narrow window of possible ailments that actually fit all the criteria. So I don't know why this continues to be so uh, so much of a prejudice against making any progress on this. We don't do this with almost anything else in the Bible. 
And you know what's the strangest thing, Jan? Mm, this is the first academic book ever written on this topic. I was going to ask you, has what have other people done? I know there have been articles on it. Yeah. The, but... longest, the longest and biggest thing that I know is a, an article in German that is 24 pages long. And it's, it's good. And actually, he's moving in the direction that I'm moving as well. Hmm. But that's the longest. And, um, and when you think, and you do a lot of reading, I know, hmm. when you think about the narrow issues that people write on, yeah. oh, my word, this is far bigger than that and far more interesting, too. So um, it was just time. It needed to be done. Yeah, because you, you think well, there's so much in Pauline's scholarship. I mean, half of my seminary classmates, I feel like, went on to become PhDs in Paul's studies or Life of Paul or New Testament. And it's, it is strange that there's not, hasn't been something comprehensive. And your book, it does fill a void. Um, how is it, before we get into the, well, well I want to read this quote on page 11 of your book because I had it highlighted just it's a great quote, and I think it's dead on, says, every interpreter, I love how you say this, every interpreter floats or sinks in a personal pool of presuppositions. Great alliteration, great metaphorical imagery, and it is 100% true. Our presuppositions are, we, we don't even, you know, like fish don't know they're in water. Uh, our presuppositions, we don't even know we have them most of the time. And so books like this that help people kind of unpack those presuppositions or challenge them, incredibly important. That's why I wanted to have you on, because you do something that it's daunting to take on a subject that everybody has just kind of, you know, washed their hands of. And it's also a great illustration of how, I think, how to make such a case, because in the book, you're very non-dogmatic, at least I found in what you're suggesting. You're, you're, you're like most scholars, you are, I don't want to say hesitant's not the right word. You're careful and deliberate and, and you don't out of hand dismiss uh, a lot of things, which is refreshing to read. Is that how you in generally interact or, or yeah, there times well, when you I get really, more polemic? I, I want to be like this. I really do. And I sought to be this way. And, I, and my prayer, of course, is that that this will kind of reboot the conversation. Mm -hmm. So even if someone doesn't necessarily agree with everything that I've said or particular things along the way, it'll raise a whole bunch of new issues that we can actually have this conversation start again uh, in, a, in a new and a fresh way. And I'm hoping that it will do that. I don't see how it won't. Um, I can't imagine that it won't have an effect among, again, I, I'm more of an Old Testament guy, so I, I can't speak to the climate of Pauline studies or this and that, but I can't imagine that going forward, people won't have to seriously take into consideration the things that you're pointing out in this book when they're forming their own, when they're writing their own commentaries or teaching about Paul. Um, I, I want people to read the book, so I don't want to give everything away. <laughs> but don't this, worry, you can't. In this conversation, <laughs> we're not going to give away everything. Too many details. I, without uh, 
I, I want I, I do it's the balance. I want to tease, but also want to show them why and give them enough to know. You, how would you summarize before we look at the passage? Well, actually, let's do this. Let's look at the passage first. So on screen right now. For those that are watching, and, and Ken can't see my screen, I wish we had the technology to make that happen. But on the left-hand side is the uh, Greek New Testament, the Nestle Aon 28, I think. On the right hand, in large, is the NIV, which is just, I pulled that up because it's kind of the most popular that people at least read from. So I would love to, well, let me read the passage. You can see, you can follow along. And then I want to have Ken point out some things that we need to know about what all is involved in figuring this out. So Paul says, uh, let's we'll start in verse, um, midway through verse six or verse six. He says, even if I should boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of the, and Paul's being super sarcastic or ironic and all of this, or because of these surprisingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given, and you can see it on the screen here in green, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, this has been preached countless times. Uh, you've heard this passage. You've read this passage. What, Ken, I'm talking to you now. What, what mm -hmm. do we need to know that really makes a difference in terms of how something's translated or how it's phrased or just what's going on in this section? Kind of... Take, take us through some things that you think we need to know. Okay. Well, first, you mentioned that, that Paul's being ironic here. So he's reacting to criticisms that he's receiving from the Corinthians. That's the first thing. So he's actually in a section. This section is often referred to by scholars as a fool's speech. So he's saying, I'm speaking as though I'm insane. Speaking as though I'm foolish. I don't want to talk to you about these things. Right. But you're claiming that you know, my sufferings, for example, uh, make me so that I'm not really a real apostle. You're claiming to be the really cool apostles. You're the super apostles, he calls them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so he's reacting to them in that way. At the end of chapter 11, he, he says, you know, not only, more or less, he's basically saying, my sufferings are a badge of my apostleship. Mm -hmm. And then you come into chapter 12. And when you, when you hit the beginning of chapter 12, uh, he's responding to a particular criticism that he's received, which is that he hasn't had any sort of visions or revelations from the Lord. And he basically says, yeah, I, I really don't want to talk about these things, but you forced me to do this. I'm going to tell you about a time that happened 14 years ago. I don't even know if I was in the body or if I was out of the body, but I was taken up into the third heaven, which in my understanding just means heaven. Mm -hmm. So if you've got the sky, you've got the stars and all those that are out there, and then you've got heaven. He's taken up there. He hears inexpressible things that you know, he's not permitted to talk about. And then um, and um, he's even using third person. So he's saying, I know a man, but it's clearly mm -hmm. Paul because he says, 
that because of these revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Now, the reason that God gave him a thorn in the flesh is to keep him from exalting himself. So if you come to verse 7, which is a crucial verse in the whole thing, the central verse, mm-hmm. because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, those are the first words, maybe not in your translation, but in Greek. That's what I've got in front of me, by the way. Yep. Uh, uh, therefore, in order that I might not puff myself up or I might not uh, become conceited, I might not exalt myself, there's different ways of translating, mm-hmm. then... The next word is, there was given, adothe, that's a divine passive. For anyone who hasn't heard that word before, it means God permitted it, but doesn't say God's name there. That's one of the few things in this whole discussion that almost everyone agrees on. That's a divine passive. God permitted this. To me, a scolops, that's a thorn is how we translate it. Um, mm-hmm. Germans typically translate this more like uh, a, a stake. So it just means a sharp pointed object. It could be like, uh, like a date thorn, which is like a three inch, four inch thorn. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be like a, you know, a big old, um, you know, something that you would impale someone on in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but probably this is something in between there. It doesn't mean thorn per se. It doesn't mean something like you get under your fingernail or under your skin or something like that. That's the immediate connotation in English, English only, and, and especially contextually, you know, not being in places where there are thorns like this in abundance, but being in places like suburbia where thorns are kind of the things that you prick your finger on or you have to get a needle to kind of dig it out of your skin. That's how I've always just heard this. And so it just becomes this phrase, like, oh, he's, he's dealing with a nuisance, like a little I nuisance. I actually cited, I came across this article in my study. It's a little side note, but it was the, the Saudi Journal of Ophthalmology. Uh, and it was okay. talking about eye injuries that come from date thorns for people who work in harvesting dates. Oh, wow. So there's these big old thorns. Uh-huh. And, and I was like, that's interesting, you know, very different type of set of presuppositions if you're living in the Middle East and dealing with, yeah. you know, date, whatever they call them, plantations or something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so scolops is the next word here. Mm-hmm. And then he says, uh, in the flesh, tesarki, mm-hmm. that is almost everyone agrees what's called a data of place. It just means it's in the flesh. This also makes it really hard for the relational view, like Paul's mm-hmm. thorn in the flesh was people against him, because then it would have to be like a data of, of uh, an adversative data, something like against my flesh, or um, it's just, it's just, the picture is very clear. There's like a thorn or a stake, like, or like a spear almost, like sticking in his flesh somewhere. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what you get from that. And then he says, an angel of Satan. That's the very next uh, words. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes our translations translate that as messenger, but the word there is angelos. In mm-hmm. Paul, it's usually angel. It can be a messenger, but it's usually an angel. And it makes very good sense to translate it as an angel of Satan, particularly because of how much Paul talks about spiritual warfare, not just in this greater passage, but also in you know other places in his writings, demons, Satan talks about them mm-hmm. a lot. So it's an angel of Satan. 
in order that he might pull off fitse, in order that he might, a lot of your passages will say, torment me. But that's very interpretive. I mean, this is just the word that you would like punch someone in the face. And it usually was a punch to the face, which actually plays a part in my whole discussion, because at the end of the day, I think that's what this thorn in the flesh is, something related to a face. But it, um, this particular nuance has not been noticed by people. Uh, that's not right. It has been noticed by people, commented on by people, but not been incorporated into the whole discussion. Mm-hmm. That Let me pause to say, this, of all the points you made, and, and you raised some good ones in your arguments that, I, that I'd never heard and come across and that really do make you have to stop and wrestle with this and, and consider it. This one, to me, the meaning of kolofidzo was fascinating because, well, one, because I'm a martial artist and punching in the face and getting, you know, beatings and all of that have been make uh, that connection. very familiar with the idea of punching and getting punched in the face since I was eight years old. But you, this, if you translate it as NIV does here as torment, um, people can see on the bottom, I think it's BDAG that's I've glossed the, the gloss at the bottom that comes up is to beat. And you, talked about this, other instances, how this word is used. And I believe you said that, I think it was about colophids, I'm not entirely sure, but I think you said there are certain words that imply receiving the action to a part of the body. And the example you gave was if you stub something, nine out of 10 people are going to say, if I say I stubbed and ask them to finish the sentence, they're going to say your toe. Because we stub yes. our toes. Technically, we could stub our ear. Our Technically, finger. we could stub our finger. Yeah. yeah. But it yeah. generally has the feeling of stubbing your toe in English. So how sure. what what was the point you were making about colophidzo, colophidze, colophidze? Uh, what, mm-hmm. to unpack that in terms of that idea of it having a specific reference. Used not technically and always, but right. in general in Koine Greek. Yeah, and I don't want to overstate this because words mean what they mean because of how they're actually used. Mm-hmm. This word can be used in a more general sense of just to, you know, just to hit someone, but it's usually has these attendant nuances to them, like you said. So we've got other words in English like this as well. If you say you spank someone, mm-hmm. you know, it's probably their back end. If you Say you slap someone, you could be slapping their arm, but you're probably slapping their face. So we have those same types of things in English. And this is one of those words, and you can tell by the way it's been used other places. So this doesn't tell you specifically for sure that it's his face, but it's your, it should be your starting assumption. And if that's built up from other arguments, then you end up with the face. Mm-hmm. This is not the only thing that points to face either in this. There's a number of other reasons to think in terms of Paul's face being involved. Actually, can I say one of those while we're here? Yeah, absolutely. Paul uses the word face, I think, 22 times Mm -hmm. in his letters. And he uses it many different ways. He uses it metaphorically. He uses it different ways, okay? But 12 of those are in 2 Corinthians. Mm -hmm. So over half of all of the times he uses face are are in this letter. And there's a number of other reasons as well, which I actually unpack in the book. Mm-hmm. And when but, he's um, when he's using face in Second Corinthians, 
Uh, is he using it mostly literally? Is he using it at all metaphorically, like turn around and face me or face front or, or is it always, he's talking about like face, like face to face. No, he uses it in all different ways. So he does use it metaphorically. I want to see you face. I want to see you face to face, or um, I, I want to come into your presence. But he also talks about we with with unveiled faces, or beholding in, in you know, in the glory of the Lord. He has a whole discussion about faces and bodies earlier in the book that helps prepare you for what's coming in Second Corinthians chapter twelve. Mm-hmm. So all of these, they're like clues. They're not like open and shut arguments. All of them, um, you know, they're, they're pointers. They're things that people have not necessarily been looking at carefully. But when you say, yeah, this is pointing in this direction. Is there support for this or is this not support for this? Um, you have to work your way through the clues. That's why I actually use the metaphor clues throughout this book. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you amass in the book 20 criteria, 20 uh, things that any view needs to account for. So whether it's Paul is talking about false teachers that followed him around and just metaphorically they're punching him uh, like a thorn in his body, or if he's talking about his eyesight having, and that's why he has to write large letters with his own hand or, or if he's talking about, right. There's 20 things. Now, how did you arrive at these 20 criteria in general? Like what was your process for arriving at? Yeah, these 20 criteria simply came out of my time of study. It was just saying there are certain things that, that are connected literarily mm-hmm. here. Let me back up just a little bit. So sure. any time that you're interpreting the Bible, there are certain contexts that are super important. Mm-hmm. Um, genre is one of those. So this is a letter. That's an easy genre question. Uh, Literary context, which is just the immediate words that are around it, and also the broader context, that's you usually get most of your clues from that. Mm-hmm. Historical and cultural context is another context, very important. So it's written into a particular time and particular culture, particular uh, you know, with particular cultural norms. And that can help also unpack something. You also have um, what I would call the canonical context, which is like the whole Bible context, where you're saying the Bible is one book. It it uh, interprets itself. That's the Reformation principle of Scripture interprets Scripture, and so you're you're looking for intertextual connections too. You're looking at all of those contexts, and. Um, and so you you have to work out from those. And what I did was I just kept asking, are there specifics in the literary context? And I start with just the immediate verse, and I work out then into the paragraph, and then I work out into the discourse, which is chapters 10 through 13. And then I just work out into all of Paul's writings, um, including the rest of 2 Corinthians. So it's sort of concentric circles. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I was also asking questions about historical you know, and cultural backgrounds, because you have to do that. But that's sort of an outside the text thing that you're just saying, I'm reading, trying to read this as someone would read this in Paul's day. So basically, these 20 criteria, including intertextual um, observations as well, connections to Jesus, 
it came out of just reflecting on this and asking asking those types of contextual questions. Mm -hmm. Well, your, the criteria in there, you list them on page four, and then at the end of each chapter, you show the section that you talked about in that chapter. These are the criteria that this applies to, uh, or, or, you know, it kind of ticks off these boxes so that by the end of the book, and then you have charts in the last couple of chapters, the last few chapters were actually really quick to get through because you made things nice and in chart form, super helpful, but it laid things out and, and said, now of all the views that have been put forward, how many tick all these criteria? And that was a really interesting way to do it. I've never seen anybody approach it that way before, but it, does, I think, argue, it makes a strong argument that, that this thorn, this uh, scolops, scallops or scallops, scallops for Erasmian pronunciation, scallops for modern pronunciation. I'm going to have my friend yeah, Michael Halcom on and we're going to talk about that at some point. But <laughs> I was going to say, it might be in between that too. It might not be O or A, it might be O. <laughs> It might be something in between there. Skolops. That's we're gonna do a uh, we're gonna do a Greek pronunciation debate episode at some point. I've already got okay. the guy from uh, Glossa House. My buddy is gonna come on for that. But regardless of how you pronounce this, scallops, uh, it's uh, there. There's these their criteria, and the first criteria that you list, I, I want to talk about how you chose that one. You, now these aren't these aren't ranked. I don't think you rank these criteria in terms no, of importance. But the first, uh, let me read through the criteria just so people know what we're talking about, and we won't unpack by any means because folks, you have to read the book if you want them to unpack it. But the criteria are viewed by whatever this thorn, this skull ups, whatever it is, it has to be something that was viewed by others as black magic attacks, viewed by Paul as attacks by an angel of Satan, although permitted by God. Parallel to Job's suffering, which included skin and flesh, impacting Paul's physical flesh, comparable to the jabbing of a sharp pointed object, excruciating, not simply annoying, that's a big point, impacting Paul's face or part of his head, viewed by Paul as educational discipline by God, viewed by others as humiliating and weak, unusual, not like the pain of others, long-term but intermittent, Paralleling somehow the sufferings of Jesus, exacerbated by stress, negatively impacting Paul's rhetorical ability. That was another good point. Known to the Corinthians, not a secret. Analogous to Paul's other sufferings, connected to the heavenly ascent, involving the ear, involving the eye, and involving visible bodily damage. And Ken unpacks, he, he walks through each of those in the book. But the first one is the one that I'm most interested to hear that this was something that would have been viewed by others as black magic attacks. Why is that important? And what do viewers need to know about actual black magic attacks that the Corinthians would have been familiar with? Well, you should know that there have been something like 1600 binding curses, most of them mm. in Greek that have survived from ancient and antiquity. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this was just a big part of their life. So what's a bind for, for complete noobs? What is a binding curse? And what do you mean by they were found? Did they find amulets? Did they find writings? What does what unpack that? Tell me yeah, if you don't yeah. mind. 
various ways in which uh, there are there are inscriptions and amulets and uh, various ways where they actually find curses that have been written down against someone else to bind them. It'd be like, I don't know, let's say that you've got a, a charioteer that you really like, uh, but there's another one that is, is possible, possibly going to beat your chariot, your chariot um, in the races. So you find a, uh, find a magician and when you think of magician, don't think of all the things that are in your mind. Think of a person who's like kind of a shaman or a right. witch doctor or something like that. They're everywhere. They're not like official religion. They're just, they're, they're folk religion. They're regular. Uh, they're the people that people go to when they're afraid of evil spirits or anything else. And they can create some sort of curse against this other chariot. Hopefully, so their wheels will fall out off during the race, um, and or or whatever it is, or you want someone, you want to actually win in the court of law. So you you put this binding curse on this person's mouth or something like that. And they took these very seriously. Everybody, it's it's hard it's hard for us to get this, okay? Because it's so different. It would help you if you live you know, like I did for so many years in the Middle East to get a sense of this. But everybody believed in this. Even those who were, even those who were like critical of it, people like Galen or Pliny the, uh, Pliny the Elder, like critical charlatans using magic in various ways. I mean, Pliny actually says at one point, he says, well, everybody, I actually have the quote somewhere. Where is it? Yeah, he says, there is no one who does not fear to be spellbound by cursed tablets. And he's one of the skeptical ones. Like everybody is afraid of this because there are spirits around and people are aware of these and they're afraid that they're going to be hurt by them. So magicians are people who in their minds could control these things and help them uh, to get what they wanted. They're, they weren't always negative. You could bind someone to make them fall in love with you, which is a bit kind of gross when you start thinking about that. Um, and there's a lot of other um, types of ways that they would use them. But um, as far as like a negative attack, just imagine Paul comes into town. He's leading people in a direction that you, you, you don't want them to go, maybe away from Artemis worship in, mm -hmm. and, um, in Ephesus. And so you hire someone to put a, a um, spell on him. Now, I am not claiming there was actually a spell on Paul. That is not my claim. Right. But that when he starts talking about um, a thorn was given me in my flesh, an angel of Satan, everyone immediately would have gone, boom, this is what they would have thought of. Mm -hmm. That's what my argument is. And so they would not have thought in terms of some sort of annoyance like we think of of now. Right. You have on page 45, I'll show an image. Uh, I'll put it up on screen, but you have a great image of basically what is a, a Greco-Roman voodoo doll, uh, this clay figurine. And as part of the cursing of someone, you know, you would literally jab a thorn into its head or into its body or back or whatever. I'd never seen that, an actual image of that before. And you also talked about in these binding curses, sometimes how they would be sealed shut. 
uh, how, what were what was the point that you were making about that? Uh, well, there isn't too much that's important about the sealing and shut of the whole thing, but um, but that that they made figurines mm -hmm. that was very common. They made them out of things like lead or bronze or clay. These ancient voodoo dolls. Obviously, we're not using the term voodoo doll right, in right. the way and, that you would talk about uh, yeah. these days. Just they are not Caribbean magical. voodoo dolls, not Caribbean right. voodoo dolls, but the equivalent, something like that. Right. But um, these figurines that were created purposely, and actually we know that they also made them sometimes out of wax or wool or even dough. Um, but these were created to try to affect somebody in some way. We actually have, I think there's 34 archaeological finds of these um, of these all over the ancient Roman world what we call colossi and they would um, they would usually have something written with them and sometimes they would hide them in a place mm -hmm. uh, just because it wasn't like a public thing that they were doing it was a more of a private thing because they actually believed that these would affect change. Yeah. And there are, there are actual examples of this. There was a, a rhetorician who was uh, all of a sudden, you know, took ill and he wasn't able to speak well. And, and then they find this, well, they did it with animals as well. In this case, it was a chameleon that they had stuck with a bunch of things um, that was hidden in his lecture hall. Mm -hmm. And he was super negative about this before, but then he came to be a believer of these types of things. Mm -hmm. This is, this just permeated the world. Um, Actually, most ancient cultures have, you know, uh, things like this. They're not all the same, but folk religion or magical uh, ideas, it, it, was, it was ubiquitous. It was everywhere in the ancient world. And it's actually very prevalent in a lot of the world today, too. Mm -hmm. Can I say a little more about that? Yeah, please. I, yeah. Lived, in the middle, I lived in the Middle East for um, seven and a half years. And... Um, I mean, I went to a friend's house. He had been sick a whole bunch. And while I was there, he discovered that his wife had been hiding like little papers with curses on them. And that's because he was a new believer in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And she'd been hiding them around the house with like little, little uh, bits of his hair that uh, she had cut off of them. Uh, I found uh little blue amulets secretly stuck to my daughter's clothes just to try to protect them from evil spirits. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a friend whose family killed a rooster on his behalf to just try to get the powers to go the different direction uh, because he was having problems in his life. Uh, I, I could give you so many examples of this. Mm -hmm. You know, a person came and asked for help because he was waking up in the middle of the night with hands around his throat and um, he had gone to all these different magicians to try to help get protection from them. I mean, this is, this is just very common. And I guess by living in the Middle East, it helped me on this particular piece to be a, a lot more sensitive to this than probably a lot of European or uh, North American scholars would be. Yeah, it's not something that is at all familiar to most North American, most Europeans, but to people who are sub-Saharan African, to um, South Asia. I spent a number of times going to India over the years and people in animistic or um, in, in shamanistic cultures. It's normal. 
It's not even something to question. It's it's a way of it's a way of sabotaging something or someone. Um, these little figurines that you would put curses on, or, or or using, you know, like you mentioned, cutting hair, or using body parts, or, or, or little effigies, or animals to represent the person. It's it's a whole world that we just I say we meaning kind of Anglo European North American. We just don't think about it. It's not part of our reality, but it was a part of Paul's reality in terms of the world he was in. You know, the book of Acts is filled with examples of Paul confronting sorcerers, pagans, demons. Right. It was a normal thing. Jesus exorcisms. I mean, this was, it's something that we just have to, we have to understand. It was a normal part of life. You are, and, and to, to reiterate what you said, though, you're not saying that Paul's thorn was a demonic, you know, uh, curse attack, whether somebody wrote a curse out, folded it and drove a stake, a skull ups into it, or they took an effigy of Paul and like, you know, poked around his eyes or head or something. You're not saying that that's what it was, but you're saying that his audience being part in that world, they would have just naturally immediately assumed that that's what it was because of his phrase an angel of Satan primarily. Is that correct? Exactly. You said that exactly right. I did ask someone at one point who is an expert in this area. I just said, do you think that Paul would have actually had people trying to do curses against him in his ministry? And the person, of course, that would have happened all the time to him. And actually, they would have viewed him. Just think of this. I know this is going to be hard kind of category breaking for people. But from the outside, people would have viewed Paul as a certain type of magician himself. So there is actually, you know, a couple of power encounters that he has with, he has one right on the island of Cyprus, Acts 13. There's a magician there, and they would just view it as one magician against another magician. Now, Paul obviously did not view this as magic at all. This is a, you know, a work of God. But, um, but we have to remember that this is the world that they're living in. And if we can actually factor that in as one way that people would have perceived this, it can help us narrow the possibilities of what this thorn in the flesh could have been. Mm -hmm. But once again, it's only one of the 20 criteria. It's right. not the thing. I think one of the difficulties in, even in this whole discussion is that the argument is in the details. Yes. So um, if you're going to be persuaded, you actually have to get into the weeds and look at the details. Like both of us have now. Yes, that's one thing that that readers have to know is there. It's not a people wanted like a simple. Well, what do you think it is? Why do you think it's that? Why do you think it's this? And you can't you can't do. There aren't enough. There are enough clues to like you said to narrow down. It's something physical. It's something involving his head, his face. It's something intermittent. It's something excruciating, not just a nuisance, but you have to pull all those strands from all of what you've surveyed in the book. And, and that's hard in our modern evangelical culture where we like proof texts. We like a quick show it to me in the Bible or I'm not going to believe it. <laughs> and funny. it's so frustrating. I was having a discussion just yesterday with somebody having to do with whether Christians can get tattoos or not. And, and, and the mindset was, this is what it says in the Bible. Here's the text. Show me a text. Show me. And I was you, trying to walk someone through the concept of hermeneutics right. is, 
it, it's, it can be maddening at times um, within our own tribe, within evangelicalism. But to get to the bottom of most theological issues, you have to do that. You have to walk through and look at the land and take it. It's like any good detective has to look at all the clues. There's rarely a smoking gun. That's you right. just have a bunch of different clues. And I think you've done a great job laying those clues out. In the book, You, since we're talking about Satan and, and angels of Satan, there, you, you talk about how that Paul likely could have viewed this as an attack from an angel of Satan. What do, what does that mean? Especially, well, I'll ask you something in a second. But what do, we we talked you talked about what you think people looking from the outside would have probably pegged it as. Mm -hmm. But yeah. how would Paul have interpreted that in his view of Satan? Yeah. So if you have someone who's listening to this who is an anti supernaturalist, they're not going to like my next answer. <laughs> but I think Paul, who was a supernaturalist would have understood this to be some sort of attack of a demon. An angel of Satan is most easily understood in that way. But it's not that demons have some sort of control over him. God permitted these, this demon to sometimes attack him with uh, piercing pain. And if we're uncomfortable with that idea, we just have to look at the book of Job. And in the book of Job, you actually have Satan himself who is coming before the Lord and, um, you know, accusing Job. First, it's his possessions and his uh, family that gets attacked. But then it, it becomes the second wave is his own health. Mm -hmm. And he's actually attacked with a skin flesh uh, ailment of some sort. And I actually think that Paul's making connections with that as well. I mm -hmm. uh, didn't mean to go there right away, but that no, is that's actually part, that's part of the whole discussion. So I think yeah. that um, he would have understood it. He would have understood it to be um, some sort of attack, but permitted by God. In other words, mm -hmm. God had good purposes in this, even though uh, the evil purposes are one of Satan's angels, which is what it, you know, a, a demon is an angel, just an evil angel, mm -hmm. fallen angel. Um, somehow he was given permission by God to do this, and God allowed it because Paul needed two things. He needed to be humble, and he needed to learn that God's strength is perfected in weakness. Those mm -hmm. are the two explicit things stated in the passage. Mm -hmm. uh, that brings up a question that I'd like to ask. This is just a kind of another aside. And we, we love asides here. It's the beauty of That's having right. these long form discussions yeah. is you can pursue some of the things. But this if if what you're saying is what Paul was thinking and, and dealing with and how he would have viewed the situation, what does that say today to Christians who are fearful of demonic attacks of, of spiritual, whether you want to call it spiritual warfare, whether you want to call it, de, uh, you know, some people would go straight to demon possession or just demon torment. Uh, you know, what, how, what do we say to that? It, you know, no, cause I, I just go ahead. I just had a conversation with someone yesterday in this office where I'm saying this is my office I'm in today um, about this very question. Someone who is fearful actually uh, about the 
you know, the attacks that could come from, from uh, demons. And I would just say that there is nothing that can happen to you whatsoever. If you actually have the Holy Spirit living within you, there's nothing that can happen that God doesn't permit. God will protect you, you and he won't allow anything that isn't for his greatest glory and for your very best good. There's no reason to be afraid. But what that doesn't mean is that everything's going to be easy. God may actually allow a Job type of thing to happen or a Paul type of thing, Paul's thorn in the flesh type of thing to happen. Right? just was listening where Jesus says to Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat or that type of thing. And God um, gave permission for him to do that because God had greater purposes. So God is sovereign. God is over all. It's not like there's... God and there's Satan here. It's like God is the one who's the creator of all. Satan himself is a created being. Maybe his counterpart might be something more like Michael the Archangel. Um, it is not that God is somehow the counterpart of Satan, like a lot of people think. Right. But God has um, grand and sovereign purposes, and he's bringing all things to good purposes, in individually as well as corporately. Uh, how would you how would you factor that in this in all of this to the practice that's very common among Christians of uh, binding Satan or casting out Satan, rebuking Satan, Satan, you have no authority here, da, da, da. and how would so how what are some guidelines that you would give students or yeah. lay people who wanted to know well when do we rebuke and when do we say okay this is a thorn situation. I think part of the problem is, depending on our church background, some of us actually need to warm up in this area, and some of us need to cool down in this area. Oh, I like that. So, Unpack that. That's a great saying. Yeah, what do you so mean by in that? My, in my class, I'll have people who come from, you know, churches that I had one girl say, well, you know, we don't do counseling in our church. We just do deliverance. So they probably need to cool down a little bit. In other words, mm -hmm. all they do is when someone is having a really hard problem, they'll just come to it and they'll just be like, we command in the name of the Lord that this demon of whatever it is, fear or, you know, anger or lust or whatever, be gone. And that's like the whole discussion. And yet I also have students in my class who are just, you know, they're, they're just all about kind of the internal workings of a person. They have these year after year of long-term counseling and they never bring in the whole discussion of Satan and the whole thing. And, that, that just won't work. I mean, the handbook of the American Psychological Association will have a description for everything that exists in the whole world, mm -hmm. right? Everything they've seen. But some of those things are actually uh, going to be demonic in some way, shape, or form, whether specifically or more broadly demonic. Mm -hmm. So um, you asked for, like, what would you say to your, your students about this? Here's just a couple suggestions. I would I would say you would, um, when in doubt, pray. If anything's going to happen in a situation where you think that there's a demonic spirit there, then pray. Uh, if you do anything else and then you get off track, then come back and pray. That's what I would say. You can use scripture. Jesus did when he was... Um, when he was challenged by the, the devil. So speaking scripture is good, making declarations of truth, like, you know, Jesus overcame Satan 
at the cross. That is, those are true scriptural statements. Those are great. Um, you can take authority in a situation, but you have to be careful because you don't always know whether, whether it's just a psychological dis- disturbance or whether it's actually demonic. And so maybe you could say something like, if there are any evil spirits here, I command them in the name of Jesus to be gone. But when in doubt, you pray. Uh, that would be my suggestion. <laughs> no, that's never a bad suggestion. <laughs> you and Paul prayed. Paul prayed three times over this, he did. and it was the repeated "no" to his prayer that let him know, "Oh, this is not. This is yeah. This is not something I can rebuke away. God is allowed." Right. I like how you're putting it, and it's important for peer, people to understand. It's God allows His children to That's experience right. things that are painful and, and agonizing. God That's is never the source of evil. He, he, God is not the originator of evil in any way, shape, mm-hmm. or form, but some things in Scripture are explicitly stated as being permitted by God. And he this gives, is one of those areas. I forgot who said it, but he gives Satan a leash in yeah, other words, that's a good way sometimes to it. it's a longer leash, you know, for Job, it was a pretty long leash, but mm-hmm. a leash nonetheless. Yeah. And it raises interesting questions about, because you see if that's, if that's, if the connection between Job and what Paul is experiencing is uh, as solid as you make a case for in the book, then what that shows is that even after the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit, there the paradigm of Job is still in play. That's not just, you can't say, well, that's old covenant. God would never allow that in the new covenant. Yeah, for that. What, what do you think, I, don't, I hate to say cinches it or seals the deal. What do you think is the most compelling reason to think Paul had specifically Job in mind? Oh, well, there's not a, again, the argument is in the details. But there are a couple things. First of all, he uses the word, you know, angelos, which shows up as a as a really important word also in Job. So sometimes translated in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 as angel, sometimes as messenger. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to Job 1 and 2, you've got uh you've got the sons of God who are often viewed as angels. I know that that's a disputed issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also um, you've got messengers who are coming and telling him something. So that's one thing that you would start with. Just the use of, of Satan. Um, that's also one that would be important that was there. You've got in, in Job, there's something that is not obvious to people who are reading in English or even in Hebrew, actually. Uh, when Job is struck with this skin ailment, the word in Hebrew is more like, it's, it's, it's naka, which is like a striking verb. But in Greek, it's pio, which is like a stabbing or, or a stinging word. And that's the word that is actually translated into the Septuagint. And so for all of your listeners, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible done before the time of Paul. The New Testament authors draw from that even more than they do from the Hebrew. And so he would have been very, very familiar with that. And so this, he would have easily been able to make a connection between this thorn, stabbing, stinging, uh, stabbing uh, 
type of thing and what what is actually being said in the book of Job. So that would also be another thing that would be there. Mm-hmm. There's a number of other things too, but again, the argument is in right in the detail. It's a really flesh and skin, flesh and yeah. skin. They're they're called out as well. Sorry, mm-hmm. I didn't no, it, it's a really intriguing connection to make, and it brings up the point of Satan because. It would. It also is going to be uh, a factor. What's going to be a factor in if somebody accepts your argument or or it pushes back against it will be how they view Satan in Job. There's discussion about who is Satan in Job. Is he Satan, capital S, uh, or is he just the adversary, like one of the angels? And in your book, you do interact a little bit with some of what uh, Michael Heiser has put forward in in the with the whole sons of God and the identity of Satan in Job. And I'd like to, because Dr. Heiser did recently pass away and he's someone, I, I wish I had ever gotten a chance to connect with him in person. I've read his work. I've appreciated his work. I have a, I think a, a, a nuanced opinion of his work that I, that Carmen Imes and I have talked about here on the, uh, in, in the dojo, but how, how do you, interact how does your view interact with that of heiser or others like that when it comes to the identity of satan in job well let me first say that that my project here whatever you take whichever view you take on this i still think that there is good reason to think that paul's making a connection with job mm-hmm. whichever position you take on that uh, my particular project also only had to deal with one thing that he was asserting, and that had to do with um, the nature of Satan in Job 1 and 2. So I don't, I don't have to go into everything about Heiser, and I think he's got some really interesting things. He might overemphasize some of the, the background issues, mm-hmm. and I do think that he hedges on the way that he uses certain words, like, divine and gods, even counsel, some of those words which are key for him mm-hmm. seem to me like he's using them in ways that are different than people normally use them. But I, I, I really, I don't think I actually have enough depth to go into that. Um, that's not my uh, wheelhouse primarily. But on this particular issue, I did have to take a deep dive into how he was viewing Satan and Job because I was making this connection he basically views that he basically views Satan as in Job as like uh, a person who's kind of like a prosecuting attorney, something mm-hmm. like that. He's like, he's an adversary, but he's actually part of God's court. He's a member in good standing kind of thing. But I don't think this is right, mm-hmm. and um, and I actually offer in the book. It's kind of a long footnote. You mm-hmm. get to that page, and there's like three lines, and the rest of the Pages yeah. of footnote, but and I, I kind of had to do that partially because I was, you know, publishing with Luxem, and mm-hmm. they have published a lot of his works. But also just because um, I thought it might actually impact people, so I actually took a deeper dive into this. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't agree with his view on this. Satan appears to be challenging, challenging God in a different way than the type of challenges you would get, say, in the Lament Psalms. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also attacking an innocent person. And I don't, I mean, in the traditional view of Satan, you, that's okay because God is permitting Satan to do evil deeds even to righteous people. 
because God has greater purposes than he intends to do with that type of thing. But uh, this would make God more uh, complicit in the evil deeds, you could say, of Satan. You also have Zechariah 3, 1 and 2, uh, where there's this rebuke of Satan uh, that is very, um, that does not sound like the type of rebuke you would get to a person who is in good standing in God's court. The, but the biggest one, to be honest, is the, the overall canonical view. My, you know, Heiser tends to start with historical backgrounds, read the Old Testament passages in light of those, and then tries to make the New Testament fit with those. And I'm not really sure that's quite the way you're supposed to do canonical interpretation. And, um, and the problem with this particular point is that in the New Testament, categorically, all, all the way across the, the board, in all, the, all of the authors, in the Gospels and the writings of Paul, book of Revelation, Satan is an evil being, an evil angel who is opposing the work of God. So then you just have to ask the question, uh, is it more likely that there was this dramatic shift in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament so that view of Satan morphs so much or, or that it's some sort of expansion of what was already there? And I think the expansion view is much simpler to argue. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the reasons why, at least on this point, and on this point I'm more comfortable speaking Right. I don't agree with him, even yeah. though I do appreciate some of the things that he's actually drawn that I've read in other places. Yeah, and, and that's something I like to reiterate all the time here uh, at Disciple Dojo is when, when scholars and interpreters disagree on things, <clears throat> it's not like it is on a lot of social media. On social media, if you disagree with someone, somebody says, well, they're evil and you're righteous and they need to be demonized and canceled and, you know, whatever, whatever. It's not like that. Disagreement is the lifeblood of good biblical scholarship. And you can have people who are the closest of friends, who are united in fellowship with Christ, who, who take communion together, who serve together, and yet they can have genuine good faith disagreement on issues. And, and I think, especially, you know, on, in our age, I, this is going to be on YouTube. And anytime somebody disagrees with something on YouTube, they will let you know about it in the comments. And it's rare that when they do, they do so in a way that's fair and charitable and edifying. It's usually, this is why you're a heretic. This is why I'm unsubscribing. This is what, you know, but that's not what's happening with certainly not in your book. And even when you interact, like I just used Heiser as an example because he is so popular and he has had such an impact on how many lay people view biblical scholarship and biblical studies. And and I think that is an eternal legacy that he leaves behind is getting people interested in these type of discussions. So you taking a different view than him is not you saying he's, you know, awful, shouldn't read him, shouldn't he? It's not that at all. It's just saying, this is why I think on this issue it's incorrect. This is why I think this is. And folks, if you're watching this, we just need more of that in the church. We need more. I mean, Disciple Dojo is called Disciple Dojo because in a dojo, you go and you spar. When I go to train jujitsu, my best friends in class are the ones that are trying to choke me the hardest. And I'm trying to choke them right back. <laughs> 
And at the end of class, guess what? We hug, we thank one another because we made each other better. And we realize that we're teammates or on the same team. So whenever there's theological debate, this is kind of an aside to an aside, but whenever there is theological debate and, and disagreement among scholars, people who aren't as familiar with scholarship realize that that's a good thing. That's part of the process. That's how our thoughts and our true. arguments get sharpened. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's so good. Um, and, and I would just add one thing to that. I think that mm -hmm. that's really, really important, um, but also that we figure out how important of an issue we're talking about. Because there are some issues that, you know, I would just stand up and disagree in a public space about, like if you're talking about, did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, yeah. guess what? Yes. At that point, we're just, <laughs> we're just gonna have to, dis we're gonna have to disagree and I'm gonna make it very clear that I disagree, but I'll still try to do it in a gracious way. Right. Even on something like that, but I'll, I'll be really insist, insistent and intransigent, even on that type of thing. And if it's super unimportant, yeah, whatever, you can think of whatever you want. But we're talking about middle level things here. Right. Things right. that have consequences to, at, you know, at some level, but they're not affecting whether or not we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. Yeah. I think that's most theology. I mean, once you get outside of the main apostolic orthodox teachings of the Christian faith, I think the bulk of what's out there kind of falls into that. It's not inconsequential. Like you say, it does, it's not that it doesn't matter. It very much matters whether you're a Calvinist or Arminian, whether you're a Pado baptism or, or um, believer's baptism, whether you went women in ministry or not ordaining women in ministry. I mean, these are, they matter. They're, they're important. Uh, so they, that's why they need to be, people need to hash it out. But like you said, just in a way that's, I think that's commensurate with the level of importance that the issue has is a good rule of thumb. On page 173, you talk about a catalog of eye ailments in Asia Minor and, and how that offers an intriguing parallel. Because one of the suggestions, when people have suggested Paul sowing the flesh, I think Ben Witherington and uh, a number of others have said it's something to do with the eyes, with his eyesight. And you you don't rule that you're you don't rule that out, um, but you also think it can be a little more specific, I believe, or at least you can narrow it down. It's not just a general eye issue because of the pain and and all of those other criteria. But tell me about these. I had never heard of the eye ailment catalogs, like the the findings that eye ailments were a big deal in throughout that region. Yeah, I just stumbled on this, and actually, this is brand new. This publication, so it's just um, a list of things that they had found in the region of Lydia, which is basically Western Asia Minor, mm -hmm. and they had found. They were just talking about the various ailments that are dealt with in sort of a pagan, religious type of setting, and about half of them, just under half of them, were related to the eye. And also, so that was a publication by um, Malay or Malai, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, and Petzl. And, um, and there was another um, historian named Zucconi who also talks about how eye ailments are often mentioned in the literature. Mm. So the, all that does, it doesn't prove anything about this. It just raises the um, kind of the plausibility that this that eyes play a part in this. 
So this is just a very small part of the whole book mm -hmm. that you're referring to here. Yeah, the it was very much an interesting little, let me ask him about this, because this, yeah. me, this interested me when I was reading it, because I have one of the New Testament books that I have spent the probably the most time teaching through is Revelation. And so anything involving eyes and Asia Minor is going to catch my attention because of Laodicea and the ISAV and that kind of stuff. But I never heard it. I just I wanted to ask you and, and you saying it's new is why I've never heard it, obviously. Right. Yeah, I just, I just stumbled upon it. And it's um, but that's not the main reason people actually hold to an eye position. The main reason is the parallel with Galatians 4, yes. 13 to 15, which is, you know, I disputed it for ages. But that section where Paul says, you know, you would have plucked out, plucked out your eyes and given them to me in a context uh, when he's dealing with a physical ailment. Mm -hmm. And people say like, well, it looks like he's talking about his eyes. But the reason I used to dispute it is because it could be like, you love me so much, you would have jumped off a cliff for me kind of thing, that type of thing. Right. But the more I looked at it, the more I thought this is more possible especially when you already have all these other facial indications mm -hmm. and you've got an ear indication that is coming from Irenaeus. That all sounds like a joke, doesn't it? I've never heard that. And Irenaeus, I'm sorry, <laughs> I've just never made that connection before. I've been with this too long. <laughs> and, um, and other things like that. So I'm not, I would not argue that this is I in particular, but that somehow it involves the eye somehow it involves the ear or it appeared at least that way mm -hmm. to say that someone is having some sort of face band they're putting their hand up here well what are, what is it for is it their ears their eye does it involve all of them and of the seven uh, seven ailments that i give at the end they all to some degree overlap with the eye the ear the side of the face mm -hmm. one side of the face yeah so Mm -hmm. That's why I mentioned that. And you gave some examples of different types of facial pain. Yep. Um, that's not an experience that many people are even aware of. I mean, I, I've, I think of when I think of like head pain or something, I think that, that would involve the eye or the face. You know, I think of like a migraine. Uh, sometimes when you're reading something, your eyes can cause pain and it can cause But you're you talk about some conditions that are far worse than that. Oh, absolutely. What are some examples that, that viewers may not be aware of? Yeah. So, um you know, the Facial Pain Association of the United States estimates there's actually quite a lot, a higher number of people who deal with facial pain and a smaller percentage of that uh, are very serious. Uh, let me give you one example, trigeminal neuralgia, type one, trigeminal neuralgia. People suddenly have these stabbing pains that come right out of the trigeminal nerve. So I'm just gonna show you on your face mm -hmm. right here what's called a ganglion. It's just outside of the upper part of the ear. It's where your facial nerves, uh, the trigeminal neural, uh, the, the trigeminal nerve, which runs up over your forehead into the side of your face mm -hmm. and down your jaw. Has anyone ever done this on the dojo? <laughs> no, but you are doing a great job because it looks just like you illustrated in the book. <laughs> they, all, they all come together 
had a ganglion, which is kind of like a mass together, and that's where it goes into the brain. And right there, sometimes the nerve gets pushed up against by an artery or a, um, or a, um, what's the one that goes the other, another, other direction? The vein. Anyway, yeah, Veins and arteries. <laughs> a blood vessel of some sort pushes yeah. up against it and causes it to go crazy. And it's the pain levels are considered to be among the highest of all in the world. They used to call this the suicide disease because there was mm. no way to treat it. People killed themselves all the time because of how often this happened. Mm. But they can be fine. And then they can go like 30 seconds. They just have awful pain, which absolutely collapses them. Then they'll be wiped out, tired afterwards. But af after that, they'll be okay. They could literally continue a talk or continue teaching or something like that mm -hmm. if they were a teacher like Paul. So that's something um, that is a possibility. And, and, and how is it described? I actually have like two kind of gross pages mm -hmm. in the book where I describe people who deal with base pain like this. And just giving them the opportunity to just sort of say in their own words uh, what this is like. And a lot of times they would describe it as, you know, like you hooked up a battery to your face and it shocks you. Well, Paul didn't have that as a, as a metaphor to use, uh, that someone's driving a stake into your face. Yeah, that's actually one that people describe it in these days. So um, there are actual conditions that are like this. And I listed out six of seven of them, actually. Yeah, you listed a few uh, uh, starting, I think it's around page two, two yeah, 213, um, chapter 14 of the book. You go through and catalog, and this is the picture I was referencing for folks that I'll put it on the screen since you can't see it on my, yeah. my contrast is too bright. But the facial nerve, the ganglion nerve, uh, trigeminal nerve, rather. Uh, and that was a that was a really that was a hard chapter to read in terms of just you feel so bad for people that experience what they had talked about and it it this is what it does folks that are watching this is what what Ken suggests and listing these conditions is not that's what Paul was going through it's this is something Paul could very well have been going through and so you're you're giving more plausible options that are specific that account for all of the things that Paul was talking about, but you don't do what I think a lot of more sensationalist writers would have probably have done, uh, which is like triumphantly declare that it's this. Instead, you're saying, I don't know, but it's got to be something that does these things. And that's that was a refreshing part of reading the book was how yes. open it was at that level of detail, precision, uh, but still guiding people to, hey, it's it's got to be this. It's got to be this. It's got to be this. So what makes the best sense of it? Um, I, I think somebody asked me on Facebook when I posted about that I was going to be interviewing and I they said, oh, Paul Storn in the flesh was the false teachers that followed him around mm -hmm. and my response back was, uh, I said, actually, now having read Ken's book, I think that's the least likely option. Mm -hmm. Whereas before I might have given that equal weight. Right. But 
but it, I, I think after reading your book, I you, you at least have convinced me until someone comes along and offers a full rebuttal and addresses all of the points as well as you have. That kind of is, that's the way I'm leaning as well. Why do you think that it being a metaphor for false teachers or opponents, the, the so-called Judaizers or, um, you know, people that would follow Paul around or whatever. Why do you think that is least likely? And historically, where did that view arise? Let's start with the historical part of that question. Uh, historically, it arose somewhere in the fourth century, it looks like. And you see, and the person that is always pointed to actually, I guess that would be 5th century, is Chrysostom. Mm -hmm. So Chrysostom is an early, not that early church um, author. And by the way, his name was not Chrysostom. His name was John. But he was such a good preacher, they called him Golden Mouth. Golden Mouth, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. But um, he, it's, it's interesting because he actually mentions, he says, well, a lot of, you know, people say that it's some sort of, you know, pain of the head or something like that for Paul. But that cannot be because God would not allow his apostle to be touched like that. So it must have been someone like Himenaeus and Philetus who are opponents of the truth. And so he, for a theological reason, he actually says this. I think that's where it actually arose. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's, Chrysostom himself is actually a uh, a witness to the the head pain view um, but then he says but yeah i can't go that way so i'm going this other direction another reason that maybe someone would take this view is because paul is actually countering like false apostles in the context mm -hmm. but that actually kind of cuts both directions and the reason why it does is because in the context, he's actually talking about these so-called super apostles who are in Corinth. They've recently come to Corinth. Paul's opposing them. They're opposing Paul. He's responding to them. Um, but, you know, his thorn in the flesh had started probably 14 years before. He said his vision had taken place or his out-of-the-body experience or whatever it was mm -hmm. um, took place um, 14 years before, and the implication is that the thorn started immediately after that. So he can't be responding specifically to them. Then you have to say, okay, maybe then he's just referring to anyone who opposes him. But there's nothing special about that. And Paul is actually putting this in his letter at a point which is at the apex of all of his sufferings. One of the things I do in the book is actually I actually make a list of all the sufferings in 2 Corinthians. And, um, and here he's putting this thing right at the apex and generally struggling with people who oppose him. There's nothing really special about that for Christians. That happens to people all the time. Paul is not different than many Christians at different times. So something that's unique uh, has to be part of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. It's it's good. That's that's enough to get people interested. I think to relook at this uh, situation, and that's what your book does. That's what I want people watching this to do: is to do what Ken suggested and say, "Hey, put aside the assumptions or the presuppositions that this is an unsolvable mystery, and look at it with fresh eyes, possible pun intended, and see what makes the most sense." And it's a it's a great 
I mean, I, one, I think it's helpful just to do that as a, a biblical studies exercise, looking at something fresh, reading it in multiple translations, doing word studies. I mean, this is textbook biblical interpretation that we want people here at Disciple Dojo to recognize as being part of a scriptural biblical life of discipleship. I mean, this is an act of worship. Scholarship is an act of worship as much as anything else when done correctly and, and fully and prayerfully. But it also it, it also has an impact on our life. It, it has an impact asking how God could allow Paul to experience whatever it was will then shape how we look at our sufferings, whatever they are, in the context of, you know, is this something God, what, what purpose could God have for me in this? And to some Christians, that's just that whole sentence is heretical because they think, no, Jesus came to heal. And if you're a Christian, you should be healed and you should never have any infirmities or maladies. And that's just your lack of faith. Then, you know, name it, claim it and move on. But that's, I think, closer to the folk religion uh, and, and the binding curses and that kind of magic in terms of how it assumes God operates. When you look at scripture, there's God allows Job in the Old Testament, Paul in the New Testament, Jesus at, during Holy Week. He allows even his incarnate son to suffer physically. And so th that, this, is a, this is an issue that I've really appreciated reading your perspective on because it gave new insight and it, and it gave me things to think about. I, if somebody asked me, okay, so what do you think? Uh, that, that what do you think Paul's thorn was? I would, I would feel confident saying, I don't know specifically, but I think it is something in the realm of craniofacial pain as the top candidate, possibly eyesight involved because of him writing his own name in large letters with his own hand or the Galatians tearing their eyes out for him. Possibly, you know, that's kind of in there. But definitely, I think it's a physical malady. And, and I think you've made a really good case for it. The question that somebody asked me, <laughs> they said, and I'd like to hear your response because nobody cares my response. They said, could this not be, could Paul have been vague enough so that it could be relatable to people who are experiencing any manner of beating, torment, trouble, nuisance, whether it's from other people, whether it's from physical ailment. What do you think about that suggestion? Mm -hmm. Commonly, the way it's put, too, is, um, you know, God intentionally put it in this way so that we would be able to apply it to whatever difficulties we are going through. Yeah. So one of the problems, well, okay, there is truth in this, and then there are problems with it, too. So the good part about it is that if you actually have a passage that is about suffering of some sort, it can be generally applied to other areas of suffering as well. You can do this scripturally. It doesn't just have to only apply to help people who are struggling with, you know, some sort of physical ailment, you know, much less just something related to craniofacial pain or something. Um, however, it's not like they didn't know what it was in the first century. You know, they knew what it was. Otherwise, Paul's rhetorical force is lost in the passage. So 
um, I think that they knew what was going on there. And if they knew what was going on, if there's any way that we can actually get to that, that's what you normally try to do in a letter. You try to figure out what is the occasion of the letter. Mm -hmm. uh, we do this a lot in 1 Corinthians. What exactly is going on in Corinth that Paul's to respond to with all the problems that's in the church? And we do this in 2 Corinthians as well. But those are those two letters in particular we do it with, and yet we don't do it with this one. So I think that they knew what it was there. If we can figure out what it is today, that is more helpful for us. But it doesn't mean that if you're suffering in some sort of way that is different than this, you don't still get help by the fact that God might be using this to humble you, um, that God is permitting this, even if it's something that is um, an angel of Satan doing this thing, God is permitting it for his glory, for your good. Um, whatever is the suffering that you're dealing with, I still think that it can apply in that way, but just in a broader sense, not mm. specifically. Well, it is. It, it really is an interesting subject. It's an interesting book. It's well-written. Um, viewers, I'm going to put links to where you can order uh, this book, and I'm going to encourage you to do it. I think if you have any interest whatsoever in Paul or the New Testament or suffering among Christians, any of those issues, uh, it, it's something that needs to be wrestled with. I'm looking forward and, and I want, Ken, I want you to keep me in the loop if somebody writes or publishes anything in response. Um, okay. you know, if, because I do think it's, I think it's a needle moving discussion, a needle moving work. So I'm interested to see which way the needle is going to move on it. I, I think this has been a great conversation. I really, really appreciated the way that you've carried on this conversation. What a, what a great thing you're doing at Discipleship Dojo. I guess I would just say and remind your listeners that, that uh, this is not like one of those arguments where you say there are three reasons. There are so many little points here that all work together and move you toward the conclusion. So the argument is in the details. Mm -hmm. And um, I would encourage your, your readers to know that too. Yeah. And readers, you, you, if you read the book, it's kind of like you become the jury. Uh, you've, you've had the evidence has been presented, the argument has been made, and then it, it's up to you to decide, do you, you know, do you find it convincing or not? I, I find it convincing. I think you've made the best case I've come across. Um, I'm interested to hear from my other New Testament scholar friends what they think, and hopefully they'll watch this video and interact. Yeah, me too. I'm interested too. <laughs> anything that you're doing that's of interest, keep me posted on. I'd, I'd love to chat about it. We, again, Disciple Dojo is like, what I tell people is like, think about Bill Nye, the science guy, and science. That's what Disciple Dojo tries to be for biblical or theological studies. It's like I'm not the the I'm not publishing the works, but I am have a foot in it enough to introduce readers and to get viewers interested and informed about what's going on in biblical scholarship. Because it's really interesting stuff. So. That's great. I, I'm <laughs> sure that people who are here are just benefiting so much from it. It's a great thing. Great ministry. Great service. Well, so we 
so much appreciate you coming along and uh, stepping yeah. into the dojo. And, and we didn't really spar much because I, I don't really disagree with anything that you said. So it was it was more of a straight instruction session rather than a sparring session. But, uh, right. well, thank you so much. And it was great talking to you, Ken. Thanks so much, Jam. I hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as I enjoyed having it. I'm so grateful for Ken for being willing to step into the dojo. I'm thankful to Lexum for sending me a copy of his book. I'm going to put a link to where you can get this in the description below. I'm also going to put a link to some of his other work and his blog so you can read more of the things that he's put out there in the world of scholarship. Well, that'll do it for this dojo discussion. Thank you so much for watching, and we'll see you back here next time at Disciple Dojo. Mm -hmm.